IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we continue our look back at the notable albums of 2011. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? I think, you know, we're of a pretty similar age, so I imagine you remember that uh, commercial on TV for the Army that, you know, we do more before 9 a.m. than most people do all day. And, you know, I, th- I thought of that because here I am at 7 o'clock on the West Coast, and I'm trying to do, like, this 500-pound mental deadlift attempting to link uh, Little Nas X, you know, Human Blood Shoes, My Bloody Valentine, and White Boy Summer all into the same gag. Uh, like it's, you know, it, it, look at you. <laughs> yeah, it's like those Olympic, it's like those Olympic deadlifters that like you find on like YouTube where it's like they're just lifting and their body collapses. Like this is just too much content for me to handle at this early in the morning. You know, that's true. I mean, I feel like uh, it, it's good that we're pointing this out because I think people they they see content producers and they think, oh, it's so easy. No. And it's good to remind people that this is hard work coming up with content for the for the music <laughs> criticism enthusiast out there. Uh, you know, it's hard to, to link these things. Uh, so uh, did you come up with a bit? Or? No, no, I didn't. I was kind of hoping you would like uh, do the alley-oop here. But I think it's more that like it's, it's not hard coming up with content because like what happens is like some days, you know, you and I will be thinking like, man, the banter bin is just empty. And then all of a sudden we just get hit with something or other you know we're just like kind of just yes we're just like waiting in the corner to be fed gruel like you know some cruel <laughs> some cruel dickensian existence so there 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 we go there, we, there once again uh the 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 intro of indycast has just become uh a meditation on the pointlessness of modern life so yes now I, I found my center now now we can continue with the episode <laughs> i feel like this opening is always very meta it's always us like <laughs> sort of like stepping outside of ourselves and and saying okay what what is the content we're going to produce for the music criticism enthusiast out there and it's we're kind of letting people into our process uh which i hope people enjoy it's sort of like a a, a Schenectady, new york type uh, vibe uh to uh uh to this show um but uh yeah you mentioned the little nas x video uh, that was the big controversy this week and if you haven't seen the video uh it's it's crazy yeah it's a bonkers video it ends with little nas x giving satan a lap dance mm-hmm. and then he snaps satan's neck like they did in '80s action movies, like <laughs> Schwarzenegger and, and, and Commando, like how he just snaps people's necks all the time, and then he becomes the devil. I think, like he puts on the devil's <laughs> horns uh, at the end. Yeah, is that the thing? I, I think Lil Nas X is uh, someone who we've had so many conversations about, you know, separating art from the artist or what have you. And what I love about Lil Nas X is, you know, everything you said about this video is true, and. I've not heard the song yet. I've only seen the video through like screen caps and so forth. But like with that and like Old Town Road as well, like I am just such a huge fan of Lil Nas X existence and he doesn't even have to make music. Like I could probably go my entire, like, and most people would say like, yeah, Montero, the song itself, you know, I could take it or leave it. But the fact that like, we're watching like a master at internet manipulation. Like he, 
you know, he grew up on like Twitter. He was one of the Barb's, which is Nicki Minaj's fan base. Like this is just someone who is so advanced as far as being able to use various forms of social media to, um, you know, his advantage. And like, it's an example. Cause like a lot of, you know, right wing activists are going at him, like from all. And like, he's winning every single time. Like, the guy easily defeated the mayor, the, not the mayor, the uh, governor of South Dakota. Um, like, right. like we were just witnessing Michael Jordan in his prime. It's fascinating to me that like people on the right still feel the need to play act uh, outrage over uh, provocative pop music. <laughs> eh, they're they're bored, man. They're bored like we are. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I feel like there was a period like where you know I feel like everyone kind of got over this and it was like okay, well. You know, Madonna put out the like sex a, book. Or Like a Prayer. Yeah, that, maybe that was the pinnacle of this. But then it was like, okay, you know, how much mileage can we get out of these outrages yeah. over pop music? You know, haven't we already, like, gone as provocative as we can get? And it seems like in recent years you have, uh, you know, the Cardi B oh, and yeah. Megan Thee Stalin thing yeah. with, with WAP. That was, like, a big deal. And now people are getting upset about this because... A lot of kids loved Old Town Road, <laughs> and and I could say for a fact that my kids who are eight and four they love that song Old Town Road. Like they were obsessed with that song. I don't know if they're even familiar with this video yet. Um, I haven't had a conversation with my wife yet about whether we want our <laughs> kid to see Little Nas X give Satan a lap dance. I, I I don't know. I mean, I feel like when I was a kid, I saw terrible things. I saw, uh, you know, the hot for teacher video, like when I was around my kid's <laughs> age, that's probably as like smutty as the little Nas X, uh, <laughs> video. I don't know. It definitely is not, man. <laughs> like hot for teacher, probably not. Hot for teacher is like kind of a more like eighties, like, uh, you know, sex comedy, like dudes rock sort of vibe. Whereas, I mean, like, well, with, but it's like a woman stripping in front of like a classroom full of children, you know. I mean, that, you know, for the time, that was like pretty edgy. I think. Yeah. You know, it's like all these like ten-year-olds, and, and this woman is like in a bikini, like on a stripper runway. It was more like Animal House or whatever, you know, like it, like something along those lines. Whereas something like you know Montero is, you know, gets to the whole. Like first off, you have a uh, you know a gay black man, um, you know, very out in both regards. Um, and he's giving Satan a lap dance. I mean, like that is just even more so than like, you know, Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. Like you could just not package a better, uh, you know, a, a better, a better piece of content for like the white, the right wing, uh, you know, machinery. So, I mean, yeah, like, but he does kill the devil at the end. Yeah. He does snap his yeah, neck. I guess. So can't that, but then he, be, but then he becomes the devil. Yeah. Much, much to consider. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. That's another thing, though. I feel like Satan had a dormant period where yeah. like, no one cared about Satan. Yeah. You weren't hearing any time. Because I remember like, when I was growing up, again, like in the 80s, that was the peak of, you know, sort of Satanism. Tipper panic. Gore, yeah. yeah there were like, yeah, there was, well, you know, there was this idea of like satanic cults existing everywhere. Mm. That was the... That was the Q anon of its day, you know. Like it was like this conspiracy of Satan worshippers in suburbia, and then uh, people got over that. You never heard about Satan anymore, and now it's like, oh, is Lil Nas bringing back Satan? Is Satan going to be a thing? Yeah, man. Uh, maybe, which would be great. I would love more bands to be singing about Satan again. That's the nostalgia we need. I think more Satan bands would be phenomenal. 
Um, you know, since we're talking about outrage here, I feel like we should talk about an, an example of like outrage that didn't happen this week. Huh. And I think it's maybe because the band isn't that popular. Mm. But did you read the uh, Ice Age interview uh, that Pitchfork did this week? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I saw it. And, you know, the, like you were mentioning about maybe outrage exhaustion or what have you. Like, this is the sort of interview that I would say even in 2019, uh, like pre-COVID, this would have been like Twitter main character. Like, this is the main character in music writer Twitter for the day. Uh, well, should we just say quick, like what was in the interview? Because Ice Age, you know, they're a band. Where are they from? Are they? From- they're Denmark. They're 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 from Denmark. They're from Denmark. Yeah. And um, career, they were uh, accused of, uh, you know, utilizing like fascist imagery. Uh, there were like questions about like whether they were racist. Uh, although I feel like that was put to the side pretty quickly Mm -hmm. and they went on to become like this very critically acclaimed band uh but in this interview uh which is uh tied to the release of their new record which is called seek shelter Ah, it is called seek shelter yes you you have done your you have done your homework on this band i have done my homework and the the writer of the piece madison bloom uh brought up these things again and she also brought up some things that like i didn't know like apparently at ice age they curated a festival in the early 2010s, a music festival, and one of the uh, bands on the act was called White N-Word. Yeah. Uh, although they, they, did, they didn't say N-Word, they used the actual word. Yeah. And apparently this is a band that, like, it was like, uh, I, I believe that they were, they're a white band, <laughs> uh, white, like white people in the band, mm-hmm. and they would go on stage wearing blackface. Huh. Yeah, which... Uh, <laughs> well, also, I don't think they'd, they hadn't played a show before, I think, before this one. I think that was what they were saying. Okay, so but like, but they were still called white yeah, N-word. Yeah. Like they knew that, uh, so maybe that was a tip off to what uh, was going to be going on <laughs> yeah. here. Um, and I, I, you know, maybe I don't know. Are they a good band? I've never heard the, their music. The, the, I feel like the, I'm not going to go search it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you're called white N-word, I feel like okay, you know, because people talked about how oh, I don't like the name Diarrhea Planet. <laughs> you know, like that's a that's a turnoff for me. And I'm like, well, th- I still like that band, but like white N word, like yeah, okay, yeah, yeah that yeah. is a non-starter for me. But anyway, the, uh, you know, the the lead singer of the band of Ice Age was was asked about this in the interview, and um, I tweeted about it because I thought it was a good piece. And again, Madison Bloom, I thought did a good job with yeah. it. Um, but yeah, no one really cared about this story, <laughs> and I just wonder, like, is it outrage exhaustion or? Is Ice Age, who is a very critically kind band, but they don't really have a big audience. They don't really seem all that popular commercially. Are they? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I, I'm mystified by this band. I think you and I agree yeah. that we find this band to be really boring. I don't understand <laughs> like the critical love of this band. We'll get to that when the album comes out. But I mean, if you want to gauge like their level uh, of popularity, um, when their last album, Beyondless, came out in 2018, they... Uh, they toured the U.S. They were, I think, a co-headliner or maybe a sub-co-headliner with, like, the Black Lips. Like, that was 2019. So that gives an indication of, like, okay. IRL popularity. But with this one, it was like, here's the thing, man. Like, when there's a there's, – there's this trend – not a trend so much, but a tendency for people who – want to, I guess, go against the grain and, like, talk about, like, why this critically acclaimed band that they, you know, that everyone likes actually isn't good. And they kind of backdoor it by bringing up, like, soft cancellation sort of things. Like, 
oh, this person toured with this problematic band or they were a dick to me in person during an interview. And I think that there's like maybe some reaching going on with this stuff with Ice Age. Like uh, my look, I don't think they're fascist. I think the issue is when you play like they did in the beginning, this kind of severe militaristic post-punk uh, you're gonna kind of sort of bring in some of those tendencies. Cause I mean like joy division, just think about the roots of that band's name. It just seemed like teenage edge Lord stuff. They've clearly grown out of, but like, if I'm going to tell you that ice age is a whack band, I'm not going to bring up the cancellation bit. I'm going to bring up the fact that I think they're a whack band <laughs> and you know, that's it. Like I, I am going to stand on that Hill and die on it. Yeah. I, and I agree with you. I, I and I I never personally want to be leading the charge of like digging up stuff from ten years ago in order to hurt a band's career. Yeah. I, I mean, I do think that in this case it was legitimate to yeah, and good for and good for this interview to do it. Like they didn't drop it after like one question. It wasn't like that scene on Succession where Tom interviews um the not like the the Nazi they have working at the news network. Like Madison Bloom really pressed the pressed Elias on this, you know. I guess I just wonder about the consistency with this sort of thing because I do feel like sometimes there are artists that, for whatever reason, are in the good graces <laughs> of the music press and they don't get pressed on this as much as maybe someone else who is not in the good graces of the music press. Yeah. And like I can imagine artists where if there was a news story that said that they booked a band called White N Word. Yeah. That that would maybe be blown up more yeah. by music websites, yeah. you know. I, I mean, again, like I I, I brought this up uh, in our Lana Del Rey episode. Sometimes I like to play this game <laughs> called like, "What if Father John Misty did this?" <laughs> and like, what if what if Father John Misty? It, it came out that like he booked a festival in 2011 with a band called White N Word that performed in blackface. Do you, I mean, he, and he's way more popular than 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 uh, uh, Ice Age. So it's but, not a really fair comparison, but I, I just feel like like he's someone that has annoyed music critics. I feel yeah. like he's an example of someone that I think people would be sort of chomping at the bit yeah. to have something like this reported. Whereas Ice Age is like a smaller band that like critics really love. And I mean, again, Pitchfork brought this up and they pressed him on it. So I I, I mean, I, I don't think that they're, they're obviously not trying to bury this or anything, no. but <laughs> I don't know. It's just interesting to me, like... I feel like sometimes this matters more depending on how people already feel about yeah. an artist. And moreover, this stuff, like, in the beginning, particularly in 2011, like, I think they did use some, like, you know, swastikas or Nazi iconography, uh, like, really early on. This stuff is not, like, there's some stuff that's been on the on the books since 2011 or whatever. And, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I'm more interested in having a discussion of, like, Ice Age you know, being a band that I find mystifyingly boring rather than them being, you know, a, a band of teenage edgelords. Because, I mean, like, look, I've listened to a ton of bands who have done, like, who who have in some way, shape, form, or fashion have, like, utilized some problematic iconography. Um, and, you know, to be a post-punk band, like, operating particularly in Scandinavia, it always has that, like, aura of, I don't like, you know, similar to like how when Death Heaven was first coming out, like people thought that George, like some like his arm gestures, he was trying to emulate right. like Dio or like Freddie Mercury. And people thought, oh, you know, he's doing a Sig Hale or whatever because they're playing, you know, a black like, you know, black metal 
type thing. So and he also had that haircut. Yeah, yeah, and they're all, they're very good looking guys as well. Like you get it, in trouble. Yeah, I just feel like I feel like 2011 or 2010, whenever it was, it's a yeah. little late to be doing swastikas. Yeah, I, I feel like or, or or having a band in blackface. I feel like that's <laughs> not that you know we're, we're not talking about like 1990 or something. I mean, this was like only 10 years ago. Yeah, it's I'm, like not even provocative like it, anymore. It's like yeah, I, I, I feel like I feel like 10 years ago that was still pretty offensive. It's yeah. just that we didn't really have the means, maybe, to uh, disseminate yeah. this information or to consolidate people like mobs or whatever. Uh, but I'm like, man, that's like really like you were doing that then. That seems pretty late. Yeah, I mean, like, don't get me. It's still extremely offensive, but like, I can understand like how some bands would do it because they think it's like subversive or provide, and it's like not even creatively offensive. I I want to clarify that point. Like, it's yeah. it would be still offensive if you were to do it today. Like, and it's always been offensive. It's more just that, like, I don't know. You gotta, I think you gotta dig a little bit deeper. Well, let's move on to our mailbag segment. How's yeah. that for a segue? That was, wow. that was very smooth. Yeah. <laughs> we do have to do a segment sometime on, like, the fascist haircut. And, and just say, like, if you're a publicist, tell your bands... Don't have the fascist haircut yeah. because I think yeah. people will project. Tom York tried to tell us it. He tried to tell us in Karma Police, you know, with this line about a Hitler haircut. <laughs> That's right. All right. So mailbag segment. This question yes. comes from Kyle in Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you, Kyle. I- Do I feel like 90% of the time, like our mailbag is from someone named Kyle in Wisconsin? I don't know. Well, it's Wisconsin and Canada. Yes. Canada, uh, upper north. Upper Midwest, which is my part of the world, so you know maybe they just, you know, they feel the uh, <laughs> the winteriness of this podcast or something. Right. Um, ho- hello, Stephen and Ian. Wanted to toss a question your way. I've been thinking a lot about the lo-fi uh, and bedroom pop boom from about 2015 and where it's at now, namely the likes of Alex G, Frankie Cosmos. Eskimo. Did I pronounce that correctly? I've never actually yeah, said that out yeah, loud. Yeah, they, they, Eskimo, they right? actually go by O now. They changed their name quite a few times. Uh, Porches, Gabby's World, Girlpool, Elvis Depressedly, Teen Suicide, etc., etc. Uh, and then this is a parenthetical. Am I crazy for thinking car seat headrests and Mitski are removed from this? Car seat yes. headrests didn't really come up in, in this scene. It wasn't touring until Matador times. Mitski pivoted out of lo-fi and got involved with the suits pretty quickly. Yes, I would agree. Yeah, they're they're not they're they're not in this wave. No, and yeah, for reasons we'll talk about later. But yeah, yeah. just the fact that they're huge stars, I think, also yeah. <laughs> excludes them from this. Uh, we're five years removed removed from this boom, and I was wondering if you look back fondly on that era. It seems like Alex G was the real winner of that world in terms of staying power and critical acclaim. Do you agree? And if so, why do you think that is? My assertion is that his songwriting seems the most timeless. He's be- he's left a- enough mystique, and he's been touring hard and strategically, like he'll do a headline run followed by old head indie support slot <laughs> old head indie support slot i like that um yeah. <laughs> overall i think we got a lot of great songwriters from that universe but there was also a lot of drama and i think a lot of them had a moment that got passed by the zeitgeist by major release two or three uh thanks for the excellent show guys always looking forward to it and that's kyle from madison um i feel like kyle answered his own question yeah <laughs> A lot in this, because Kyle, very, very good question, by the way. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt that Alex G is uh, the most well-known person out of this scene. I think yeah. that's justified. I think, as Kyle suggests, I think he's the best songwriter. It does make me laugh. I was thinking about that uh, male manipulator TikTok <laughs> video, where yeah. Alex G is listed first 
above like Radiohead and the Smiths and Neutral Back to Marco and yeah. Yeah, I was like, wow, which, you know, backhanded praise, I guess, but, you know, that speaks to his prominence. It's funny, like the uh, Kyle mentioned Mystique with Alex G. I actually, I've interviewed Alex G a couple times. And my impression of him, and this isn't a dig, I thought he was like a really nice guy, but he just seemed like a total dude to me. (laughs) He did. You know what I mean? Like, he didn't have a facade of any... He wasn't projecting any kind of mystique to me. He didn't seem especially introspective about his process. He just seemed like a guy in a trucker hat who writes good jams. Uh, and, you know, I, so I don't know, like, does he have mystique? Do people look at him as yeah, this sort I, of interesting I, guy? I mean, I guess that comes from his music more than yeah. who he is as a person. Yeah, I think that he has, like, a bit... I mean, first off, you know, he... You know, collaborates with Frank Ocean. Um, he's you know on Domino Records, so I think he has a bit of a mystique because like he does do like a one, you know, like a singer songwriter, but his lyrics tend to be more obtuse. He oftentimes buries his vocals. Like he's been compared like to I don't know, like an Elliot Smith, but like Elliot Smith, you knew exactly what the lyrics were about. Like it was very very confessional and forthcoming. Whereas Alex G. Like he, he's, he's a bit more inscrutable. So I I do get that sense of mystique and moreover, like he doesn't really like to do a heck of a lot of press. Like I've, you know, like you said, he's just kind of a dude. I've heard other people who've interviewed him say, you know, he's not hard to talk to, but like not a very revealing uh, interview. Um, No, but you know, with, with, with this stuff, you'd mentioned like, you know, car seat headrest star Mitski star and both of them, got, you know, uh, elevated to bigger labels pretty quickly. Um, but man, it's funny to, to talk about like this lo-fi bedroom pop boom as something that ended. <laughs> Cause I think it kept going, you know, it's, but like with what Kyle was talking about, this is a very, very distinct, uh, time period. Like for example, you could think like soccer mommy was doing something similar to them, but like with her or, you know, Biba Doobie or Phoebe Bridgers, there's more of like, you know, backbone of like, say, Cheryl Crow or Avril Lavigne. But this was more um, based in kind of Twee or K Records sort of thing. Um, very much like community based, uh, small, tiny labels. Like none of them ever really wanted to seem to get famous. But um, and I was aware of a lot of these bands because if you wanted to see fourth wave emo bands at that time, they were, there was a lot of crossover in that world. But one thing that Kyle brought up that I think is, it's not just regarding this particular wave of music, but like a lot of DIY, smaller music in general, like the appeal of this stuff was the sense of community, the DIY, silent barn. And he mentioned drama. Oh, like I had forgotten just how much drama there was in this world. Yeah, yeah, wasn't there that that there was like a rivalry with Car Seat Headrest and Ricky Eat Acid? Yeah, so Sam Ray, like Sam Ray is someone who, you know, I've had conversations with like there were times where I think we were like enemies and then we became friends and I think we're cool like he is one of the more fascinating uh, figures on Twitter because he just kind of doesn't give a shit but you know he was beefing with car seat headrest which was funny but like extremely deep internet but then there was like what what was the like what was the thing I don't even they thought they just thought car seat headrest was corny I think like I think that was it was just straight up like your music is corny Maybe like a hint, like a hint of envy. But then it was like they would beef with like Matt Cothran from Elvis to Presley, and then 
you know, there, there was just so much. It, and then you would hear about like the issues going on about like the little labels. And then, um, you know, Matt caught like uh, as Coma Cinema, he released an Elvis Depressi, released some great albums. But then there was uh, like he went, you know, away for like treatment. And after a while, it was just like, I don't know if I can hang around these people anymore. It was like some of them continue to release great music, but I think it just speaks to how when you invest some idea of, you know, this indie artist as being indicative of like a DIY world you want to create, when they inevitably reveal themselves as being, you know, 23 or 24 year old human beings with like the same amount of drama as any other 24 year old, it becomes a lot more difficult to really uh, continue to back them because, you know, you want to like the new Ricky Eat Acid or American Music, um, American Poetry Club album, then it's like, or no, sorry, American Pleasure Club. And it's like, ugh, is he going to say something stupid on Twitter that's going to make me regret this? So like, mo like, mo like most scenes, I think this one was meant to end after a few years. So, and that's exactly what happened. And I think, you know, to go back to your point earlier about, I, I think that there was this thing by design where a lot of the people in this, uh, in this scene, like didn't want to be, like stars, you know, or, or yeah. really kind of break out of the scene, which I think is uh, a cool thing in a lot of ways. If that's something like you, like you really want to do, if you're just making music for your friends and like, or for a community of people and you want to feel connected to that, I, I think there's a lot of validity to that, but I do think there is something that sets in after a while where maybe things get a little too insular yeah, and it just becomes like diminishing returns after a while, because if, if you aren't bringing in the outside world, you know, how fresh can you make it, you know, mm -hmm. without just recycling maybe the same ideas or, or or just not having like the fresh blood that comes in when you maybe open up your music to a wider world in the way, in the way that Alex G did. I mean, you mentioned, I, I believe he was on Blonde, the Frank Ocean record. He, like no, I think time, he was like on an, Endless. I think he was on was like... Was Endless? Yeah, oh, that's yeah. right. That was like 2016, I think. Yes, it, yes, it was. And, he, and when I saw Frank Ocean at FYF Fest... He had like this orchestra and so forth. And Alex G was just sitting there on guitar with the rest of the orchestra. It was really, really, really cool to watch. Uh, and, you know, again, Alex G, I think he's really built a pretty strong catalog. I, I was uh, listening to House of Sugar before we taped uh, this morning. That's a really good record. Uh, and, uh, of course, Beach Music. I mean, I think that's still like maybe his most celebrated record that that really that record really holds up uh so yeah he's he's building a good catalog and I'm, he's definitely one of those guys where if you hear he has a new record out you're going to be excited you feel like it's going to probably be good uh so let's move into the meat of our episode we're going to be continuing our conversation about notable albums from 2011 and um we, of course, we did that last week, and we talked about six albums between us. We're going to talk about six albums again, three each for both of us. I want to begin by talking about what is, I think, now my favorite album of this year. Okay. It was number four on my list. By the way, did you see that someone found your Village Voice God, ballad? man. Like, that, that, that person is shot to the top of the, like, intern pile, man. Went into the Wayback Machine and found uh, <laughs> your your top ten. I uh, think you had Bonnie Vera at number five on that list. I think I and did. You, I was very much like under the. I was very much in the clutches of, uh, you know, very much in the clutches of uh, in the indie narrative that year. You know, I still like that album, but like, it's a great record. You know, again, like I've been listening to that record a ton yeah. in the last like week or two. 
Uh, that's a great record. I had Tyler, the creator at number 10. I don't even remember listening to that album all the way through. <laughs> like, I don't know what that was about. I mean, Tyler, the creator, talk about a guy who had an incredible arc in the 2010s yeah. wow. into the 2020. I mean, he's had a really fascinating career. We're not really going to be talking about him, although, I mean, we, we could have. We I could. Mean, <laughs> I mean, like, like his path from Goblin to where he is now, I think, is a really interesting story. Yeah. Um, but my number one album of, of 2011, and I guess this would be 1A, and then that Bunny Bear record might be 1B. Or right. maybe this is just the solid number one. But anyway, it's The War on Drugs, Slave Ambient. To the surprise of no one, that this would be my number one record <laughs> uh, of 2011. And I feel like I also need to bring up quickly Smoke Ring for My Halo yeah. uh, by Kurt Vile, which was also in your top 10, I, yes. I noticed. Yes, it was. Um, Still is. And I'm not going to, I would have talked about it in this 2011 series, but we talked about Kurt a couple episodes ago. So, you know, already on the record talking about my feelings about him. Um, but uh, Slave Ambient. It, it's the second full-length album by The War on Drugs, but in a way, it feels like their debut. Yeah. Like, it's really the album where they come into their own. And I remember I saw The War on Drugs a bunch in 2011. I remember I saw them around the time that Slave Ambient came out, which was um, around now, I think. I, I think it was like around April or so mm-hmm. of 2011, or maybe even late March. Um, but they were opening up for Destroyer. Uh, wow! When they were on tour for Kaput, and it was in a it was in a bar, and there were not that many people there. And then at the end of the year, I saw the War on Drugs again at the Beacon Theater in New York, opening for the National. So, def- a definite uh, span of venues there, moving from this bar to like this really big theater in Manhattan. Um, and it was great to see them blossom in real time yeah. as a band that really opened up playing in the bigger rooms like they were good in the bar but they were great at the beacon theater and uh you could really i think start to hear that sense of expansiveness uh on slave ambient um and this was really them at like peak interlude like where they would have (laughs) these long uh sort of ambient stretches between songs that is uh that was a big thing on this record and it's something that they gradually moved away from there's still a bit of that on lost in the dream and then deeper understanding really doesn't have have that at all yeah um but i mean for me this was my favorite band of the 2010s and Mm. uh this is a record that i think it's not quite on the level of the next two records for the war on drugs but it's really close for me Mm. uh and i think the War on Drugs heads out there. They love this record. But I think overall, this album is still kind of underrated. People, yeah. I think, start with Lost in the Dream if you're more of a, of a casual fan. And then they, of course, love Deeper Understanding. But go back to this record if you haven't heard it. It is There's some fantastic songs on there. Baby Missiles yes. is on there. Uh, 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 Brothers is on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Your Destiny's on this record. Lots of great songs. Yeah. Also, um, the, the Coming Through EP. I think that one. That I think Baby yes. Missiles is on that. That's also Coming Through, great song. But yeah, this is a classic album before the album album. Like, I think Beach House's Devotion comes up as well as far as that goes. And... Yeah, I, I, it's 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 one that if you have like I love War on Drugs. I've been a fan since you know Wagon Wheel Blues, but this is the one where they really kind of get an inkling of what it is that they want to accomplish, and you hear that like they're almost there. Like they're still doing interludes rather than like incorporating them into like a seven minute song itself, and but there's still like elements of like the you know kind of Dylan Springsteen like more acoustic-y stuff from uh, Wagon Wheel Blues. So, you know, it's I, I think it's going to be, like, one of those albums that people bring up, like, 
Oh, actually, this is their best one. It's kind of the contrarian's choice, but it's still on its own merit. It's a great record. Absolutely. And I think, you know, this is part of the interesting thing about doing these episodes is that we can look back and there's albums that seemed like they were a huge deal in 2011 and then 10 years later maybe feel a little diminished. <laughs> and then there's other albums that were, I think, appreciated in their time, but they weren't looked at as like the, the major Yeah, it was hard to see the big picture, you know? And I think this this album is an example of that, where you know the War on Drugs obviously have become this big band, mm. but they, people didn't really know that necessarily in 2011. I think there was an inkling maybe that was starting to happen by the end of the year, uh, but uh, you know certainly Lost in the Dream was where they really blew up. Yeah. Uh, but uh, how about you? What, what's the first record you want to talk about? So this is an example of a band that like tried to be the, like they would they tried to like blow up like immediately um, and. Like, not like wait, you know, like it, there was no album before the album for this one. And it's kind of a preview of like IndieCast Hall of Fame pick for me. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you know how I feel about Cold Caves, Cherish the Light Years. Now, this is an album that really did not signify greater trends. It was not a huge critical hit nor a big, um, you know, commercial hit. But nothing I love more than a band trying to rise above their station. And Cold Cave, previously, they had a pretty popular record with, um, you know, kind of doing more of like a, a minimalist New Order Depeche Mode thing. And Cherish the Light Years, it was like a pure sellout move. Like, so a lot, what bothers me a lot about like bands who want to go pop nowadays, they'll say like, we've come to accept that, you know, we actually really love Taylor Swift or Robin. Like, you know, acts that are like consensusly beloved. Um, so it's not really that daring. But like Cold Cave wanted to be like, like violator era Depeche Mode, uh, like pop nine inch nails. And um, the record itself is very much like they went in the studio, did a bunch of cocaine and the record is like mixed to sound. Even though Chris Cody produced it, the guy who does like beach house records and like a lot of like really smooth sounding stuff. This album is like basically the synth pop be here now. Like it is just brick wall the entire time. The great pan is dead. If you, like, it is one of them. Like, I just remember hearing this song. It's like, oh, my God, this sounds like Nine Inch Nails doing Titus Andronicus. Totally my shit. Um, and it kind of continues in that vein for the rest of the record. It's absolutely exhausting because it's just so loud the entire time. And um, I don't think it, it really uh, achieved their goals. As a matter of fact, pretty much afterwards, they never made another record. Like, Cold Cave like would continue to put out singles and be pretty popular in this vein of music that I don't think we talk a lot about much because I think it's kind of a Southern California phenomenon where like shoegaze, goth, cold wave, like that sort of Je Jesus and Mary chain adjacent type music always has this like very hardcore audience that like Cold Cave, whenever they come to San Diego, they'd get like a really good crowd, like the kind of people who like their favorite band of the past, or maybe their only favorite band of the past 10 years is like Dive or something like that. Um, it's because you guys don't, it's sunny all the time there. Yeah. So, you so need to listen to this like gothy music to simulate the feeling of a winter. Yeah. In Southern California. That, that's my theory on yeah. why that would be popular. There. Have you, but have you heard this album? I, I have not heard this album in a long time, and hearing you talk about it really makes me want to put it on as soon as we get done recording. I mean, calling it a synth pop beer here now, I mean, you are just pushing my buttons <laughs> with that description. So uh, 
Yeah, I definitely want to dive into that. I remember when it came out, though. Yeah. I remember listening to it when it came out and enjoying it. It, it. This seems like a record that, like, I wonder if it if it had come out like three years earlier, if mm. it would have been received differently. <sighs> if it would have, because to me, they always felt like they were still part of that wave of bands that came out like after Interpol hit big. You know, like okay. she wants revenge and <laughs> editors and, and bands like that. You know, God. like they they kind of seemed like they were. In that vein of, of yeah, like these post-punk bands that would write pretty catchy songs, uh, which you know we've and we we've clowned on post-punk revival acts on this show, but I, I do like that Interpol wing of uh, post-punk bands. You will not hear me say. Uh, I mean, even though like editors have released a lot of whack music, like they are still kind of the not, they're like the Bush of you know like like Bush <laughs> what Bush was to Nirvana. Like you gotta have that band that like just makes bangers, you know, like and yeah. takes themselves way too seriously, but are also kind of silly. Like I think that's what a lot of that's what's missing with a lot of post punk nowadays. Like there's no one who wants to be the Bush, you know, or it's just people that are like talking over, uh, you know, bargain basement guitar riffs that aren't really melodic or catchy. Like I, I like these bands, yeah, that are pretentious, but they also have a really good pop sense. And they write really like catchy yeah. minor key songs I, I, with like good grooves to them. I, yeah. I, that is always a winning formula for me. Uh, so yeah, I'm definitely going to dig into Cold Cave once we get <laughs> done with this episode. Yeah. Um, next record I want to talk about is uh, it's, it's Civilian by a band called Y Oak, huh. and this is a band that I wonder. You know, I we talk a lot about scenes in this show. We talk about the lo-fi scene uh, earlier. Obviously, you talk a lot about emo and punk. And sometimes I feel like there are bands out there that aren't really part of a scene. And as years go by, they fall through the cracks a little bit because when you get your emo syllabus or you get your lo-fi pop syllabus, <laughs> these bands aren't on there. And, and they get forgotten, which I think is unfair. And I don't know to what degree like people remember Y Oak now. They put out a record in 2018. Uh, that Some of the latter something, the faster I run. Title track is really yes. good. And I think that album was was fairly well received, but I I remember Civilian being a record that like the AV Club when I worked there. This was the last year I was there when we did a, a year end list. Um, this was like our number one album of, of 2011, and which seems like a bit of a contrarian choice now in retrospect. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and it does make me a little nostalgic for that time when I think publications did that more like when i was at the av club there was a real sense of like you know we're based in the midwest you know we're not like all the other people that are in new york i mean i think pitchfork was already in new york by then i mean they had some offices in chicago but i think they were still in new york they might i i could be wrong about that but we had a chip on our shoulder about being we felt like we were on the outside of like the cool kid music publications and it informed like a lot of our choices and i think that Along with just loving this record, a lot of people on staff loving the album. I think that was part of the motivation for for putting this up there, which I don't know if that really happens as much anymore. It, it does seem that as social media, we talked again about how this was a year when you really started to feel the impact of social media. That's been a big agent of homogenization in, in, in music writing. I mean, yeah. we now know how everyone feels about every record and it, it tends to shape opinion. And I think uh, this was an example of like, 
people on our staff just loving this album uh, and wanting to make it number one, no matter what else anyone else thought. Like, I don't even think this was like a best new music for Pitchfork. It might have been like a seven, seven point something record for Pitchfork. Um, it got a 7.9. So 7.9. So right below, yeah. right below the, uh, the, 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 the best new music line. Um, but, uh, you know, Jen Wozner is the uh, main driving force of this band. Mm. She, uh, she's, uh, I believe she's putting out her Flock of Dimes record yeah. today. Her yes. second Flock of Dimes record. She's also a member of Bonnie Vare mm-hmm. uh, now in yeah, the touring band. I think she, she's all over the place. She was on the monitor, too. <laughs> she's on the monitor. Uh, and this, but this was like her big guitar record. I oh. remember seeing them live. And she would like play solos, and it was like a really like cool like setup. It was a really great guitar record, and she hasn't really made a record like this since. Yeah. Uh, and and I just remember revisiting it uh, for this episode and, and really enjoying it. And uh, it's again, it's one of those records that uh, I don't know how important it is in indie history or like where it <laughs> slots really. I just think it's a great record, and if you're not familiar with this band. I would suggest uh, checking them out. I think it's a. I think it really holds up, and it, it's basically like a, it's a, it's like a straight down the line indie mm. rock record. Like, yeah, it's like right in the middle. Super super unpretentious. I think this is the last year before like consensus really took over, um, and I remember seeing like it being number one at AV Club, and it was so strange because I think even the people who are really into this band like wouldn't prop it up as like this is the most important album of that year i think you know i enjoyed it um i think why oak is kind of classic indie cast and in that every time they put out a new record you just hear the same 12 people talking about how underrated they are and right. uh so to the point where it's like are they actually overrated now um but no and they come out with like albums that i enjoy a couple songs i think they'd be like in a weird way like a great greatest hits type band because I loved uh, Tween. That was an album that came out in 2016 where they really went shoegazy after uh, Shriek, which was like their big synth pop pivot. I, I just think that they're so much better at like making guitar based music. But, um, you know, I can't I, I, I can't I, I, I can't knock the, the wandering muse. So, yeah. And I think in, and again, John Wozner, she's obviously done a lot of different things. She's a renaissance woman. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, it seems that maybe some of the more synth pop in, uh, instincts that she has, she's been able to integrate that more mm-hmm. into everything that she does rather than Shriek, which again, I wasn't a big fan of that record. I think it, it, it felt a little like, oh, guitars are, aren't yeah. in anymore. So let's do the synth pop record, you know, that, that kind of move, which I wasn't into. Uh, but yeah, Civilian, great record. Go check it out. Yeah. Uh, what is your next record? So kind of the opposite of a record like Civilian. Um, so I had like a 1A and a 1B of uh, 2011, and my number 1B was Drake's Take Care. Now, uh, I said in the last episode, my number 1A was M83's uh, Hurry Up, We're Dreaming. So just a quick aside, like with this record, um, back in 2011, it's not the person I'm with now. I just want to make that clear. I was in like a really chaotic like relationship where we would break up every two weeks and get back together. And towards the end of 2011, I was like, okay, if we're still together by the year end list, I'm going to choose M83 as my number one album because, you know, it's kind of a happy <laughs> record. And if we're broken up again, I'm going to pick Take Care. And what happened was 
We were together when I voted for Pitchfork's list and then broken up a few weeks later when I voted for Paz and Job. So that's why I have two different number ones. But, you know, I bring this album up because even though this is IndieCast, um, I think it's kind of impossible for us to really talk about indie music without bringing up Drake, which I don't think we've done. Um, but this this one right here is a real pivot because it is the point where Drake you know Drake was popular beforehand but then it with this record you kind of have to take him seriously because I think this is just an incredible like hip hop record very conceptual very lush musically um it holds together um as like an 80 minute piece of music um and I mean it it was it's just really interesting to watch like what happens when you know the critical community has to pivot from okay, this guy's popular to, okay, now this person's an auteur. And I mean, and and one thing that like stands out to me nowadays when I look back on Take Care is that I'm trying to remember um, when the last, you know, hip hop record came out that was seen like as much of an event as like, you know, the way that this record did. And, you know, Drake and Kendrick Lamar, like they kind of went toe for toe uh, throughout the decade of releasing these kind of like opus you know, type albums, which like you would try and like immediately have opinions about it. And um, I mean, that's a whole nother story, but like, I want to bring this one up because I'm curious, like what your favorite hip hop records of the 2010s were. Well, I mean, you know, it's, I wish I had more creative answers for this, but it would probably be, you know, the Kendrick Lamar records and then Kanye West, you know, you're talking about like event, event records and, you know, Kanye in the 2010s, especially, and this was also true in the aughts, but like you talk about event releases, mm. he did have that run of My Beautiful oh. Dark Twisted Fantasy, Everything. Jesus, and uh, My Life of Pablo, which My Life of Pablo, I feel like, was where I started to check out, where oh, I course. felt like his lack of focus really started to in like impugn the music, um, along with all the, all the craziness that took over his life after that, but... You know, I remember like when Yeezus came out, how that was just, it just dominated everything. Yeah. And and even like, you know, speaking of like 2011 event hip hop albums, like Watch the Throne. Oh, also, that one. Yeah. That was kind uh, of a, like a that, huge deal. That was an alternate choice for me. Like that, that would be just my platform to say like Jay-Z, I think might've been the most overrated artist of the 2010s. Like watch the throne, watch the throne. Like it, it, it holds up in the same way that like you watch like a corny action movie from like the nineties holds up. <laughs> like, I mean, it right. was fun, but uh, it, it's so funny that people like, even in 2011, were wondering about watch the throne. It's like, is this really responsible for them to put it out when so many people are still suffering the effects of the uh, Great Recession? And, you know, try to listen. I can't wait for the 10-year anniversary pieces for Watch the Throne to, like, talk about, like, how people relate to this album now. I mean, I think that, to me, and I I remember feeling like this in the moment, that it, it felt like a hair metal record, mm. like, from the late 80s. Yeah. And maybe maybe I'm projecting that because there's a, there's a Kanye West lyric that, like, references uh, Axl Rose. Oh. I think it's Kanye, or it might have been Jay-Z. So yeah. maybe I'm projecting it onto it for that, <laughs> but, like, just, just the excess of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and I feel like on this record, it was still, um, to me, I liked it because it was... Uh, the escapism of it and the excess of it. 
and I thought I thought it was really appealing. Like with Jay Z, where I think it tipped was like the Magna Carta Holy yeah. Grail era, <laughs> where like him and Justin Timberlake are talking about like collecting paintings and you know things well, like that. I'm, I'm interested okay. in collecting art. You know, I think it's more just. Uh, I mean, there, there's a well, whole, you know what I mean, but yeah. It's just it was like, just, the, it's just like the decadence of it, the decadence yeah. of that album. Ivory back scratcher I'm, for. <laughs> I'm not knocking art. I'm just saying like there was this idea of not celebrating art. It was celebrating art as possessions. Yeah. And and that's where I felt like the decadence started to tip a bit. Yeah. But I, you know, I don't know. I. It's like, do you want Jay-Z and Kanye West to be making a recession album? I mean, like, do you want them to be commenting on it? I mean, that's not their reality. Yeah, they're, they're like billionaires. Rich... <laughs> they're like literal yeah, billionaires. So, <laughs> you know, so I feel like that was their reality and that's the choice that they made uh, yeah. at the time. And, and and the music, I think, was still pretty good on that record. Yeah. Uh, although I've not listened to Watch the Throne in a super long time. Yeah. Uh, that, that'd be fun to throw on. Um, speaking of albums I've not played in a long time. <laughs> talk about Masterful. My, my, masterful segue. Masterful. Bring up my last album that I want to talk about from 2011, and that is David Comes to Life mm. by Fucked Up. And this was my number two album of uh, 2011 on my AV Club ballot. And uh, this is an album I have not played in years. Well, I mean, not until we did this episode. I, I, I did listen to some of it uh, before we, we, we recorded. And Fucked Up is an interesting band to me uh, because there was a moment in the late aughts and early 2010s where they were, uh, I think, considered like a pretty big deal, certainly by like mm. the music press. Yeah, you know, they put out that record, The Chemistry of Common Life Loved in, in 2008, yeah. which was this like combination of like hardcore punk and like epic shoegaze music, mm-hmm. which um, actually like seems to have like carried forward from then. I mean, you, you, you hear that combination and uh, lots of bands, I think, now in, in 2021, um, although they aren't necessarily referencing Fucked Up when they're yeah. doing that. Or if they are, I'm not hearing it. Uh, and then in, t- in 2011, they put out David Comes to Life, which is like this big like rock opera. Uh, they're like, uh, you know, American Idiot, if you will. Yeah. And uh, and I think I really got swept up in like the the grandness of it. I, I, I like rock operas. I like concept records. Um and there's a lot of great music, I think, on that record. Uh, and I remember, like, I did, like, a 5,000-word interview with <laughs> Damien Abraham, the singer of Fucked Up for the AV Club. Wow. Which seems insane that they would let me do that. Like, a five, like just, like, this epic, like, old, like, it's like I'm interviewing John Lennon for, like, Rolling <laughs> Stone. You know, like, the, the, that's the kind of space that you would get for that. Um, but I have to say, and I've talked about this in other episodes, that, like, like when I listen to David Comes to Life now, I, I find this album to be exhausting <laughs> when I listen to it. Yeah. And I think it's just related to like my own exhaustion, like with punk dude vocals. Uh like the screaming vocals on this album. Mm. Um, it just makes it really hard for me to listen to it for an extended period of time. Even though like I love the wall of guitars, I love the music. There's like a lot of great melody on this record. Mm. Um, but I don't know. I I think I listened too much to bands like Fucked Up in the 2010s. And I just, it's hard for me to put up with it. Like, I always wish they would let Sandy Miranda sing yeah. more in, the, uh, in this any, band. Like, or anyone. <laughs> or anyone. But, you know, I mean, because generally, like, like with punk and emo bands lately, I just tend to prefer female vocalists. That if you have a female singer, I'm more likely to be on board 
than like just the dude with his shirt off singing or, or screaming his head off. I, I, I'm just tired of that. Uh, and I know you disagree with me big time on that, but like on this album, especially, I think it's, it can be egregious. Like, yeah. Because that think, this, this album's 80 minutes long or something like that, you know? Um, yeah. If it was like, maybe if it was like 15 minutes, it would yeah. be, you know, a 15 minute like rock opera. Yeah. That could have been amazing. Well, for me, it's like, I really loved chemistry of common life. I reviewed it, uh, for pitchfork back in the day. And, you know, I was excited about this record. And I think what happened with fucked up is that, they became sort of like a a band that I file within the proto martyr hold steady uh, sort of wave of like sort of like punk music, but like kind of separated from the excitement and youth of it. Like it just be, they became kind of classic rock. And my you know uh, what 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 made it difficult for me to really embrace David comes to life beyond like, the rock opera part doesn't really bother me. It's the fact that it seemed like it was just so much of four minute song after four minute song of like, you know, and Damien Abraham, I pretty sure he still blocked me on Twitter, but um, I think <laughs> uh, why, I mean, I did review, I gave like some 7.0s to fucked up albums and like, you know, throughout, but um, yeah, it's just like, it, it, it's just very static and his voice just dominates everything around it. So regard, uh, regardless of like what they're doing musically, it's just really tough to endure. And I just, I also got like really kind of weary of the uh, projection of like classic rock ideals to their music. It just seemed to me to be a band that was like propped up by a lot of critics who otherwise didn't have much interest in like what was going on in like punk and hardcore and emo. Um, They became like sort of classic rock to me. And uh, going forward with this band, I think that. Um, you know, they, they had some interesting ideas, but the music itself was generally less exciting. Like I loved reading their, uh, you know, their press releases, but the record itself, the albums themselves just seemed like very inflexible. And also the wall of guitars. I mean, like they would just overdub after overdub after overdub to the point where kind of be here now-ish, to be honest with you. <laughs> Second time we brought it up. It's interesting you bring that up because, uh, about the classic rock projection onto this band, I would actually argue that like them still trying to hold on to the hardcore aspect of their music is like what like holds this album back. You know, huh. you have to have the screaming. Guy yeah. The I, I would say that, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, like why not just have Sandy Miranda sing more songs? Cause yeah. it's like, you obviously have this grandiose music, you know, that is beautiful. Why do you have to have this hectoring lead singer? You know, it, 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 cause like to me, the music is the strength of that album. It's not like the hardcore punk vocalists on there. I mean, to me, just totally embrace being this grandiose rock band. If it weren't for Damien Abraham, like, would they be received in the same way, though? Like, would they be seen then maybe as more like, I don't know, Muse or something like that? <laughs> you know, because that's the thing. It's like, you're right. It's, it's kind of a no-win situation in that, like, the vocals of Damien Abraham, like, really uh, take grab your attention and make fucked up, like, a very interesting... Um, you know, uh, they, they, like a very interesting concept of like, here's this hardcore band trying to make like rock operas about, you know, Greek mythology and, um, you know, like all these high heady concepts. But at the same time, it's like, do I want to listen to this for 75 minutes? You know? Yeah. I just looked up quick to see if Muse put out an album in 2011 and they didn't. So ah. that's too bad. I would have liked to talk about a Muse album. We haven't talked about Muse yet on IndieCast. I know. I'm, I'm ready. I'll look at... I'm looking forward to that conversation. Same. Uh, 15th anniversary of Black Holes and Revelations. 
coming up at some point. Yeah. Yeah, I think this summer. Maybe we'll next maybe year. We'll the, next year, the second law turns twelve. <laughs> or no, next year the second law turns ten. I think. Yeah. Oh man, the second law. Oh, yeah, most fun uh, I've ever had writing a review, probably. But neither here nor there. Oh man. Uh, okay. So what's the last record you want to talk about? All right. So this album also feels a bit marooned in 2011. Um, it's not an artist I hear people talk about a heck of a lot, but it's a uh, EMA. Uh, past life martyred saints and yes you know like this was also in my top 10 it would still be it's not a record i pick up very often but every time i do i'm like damn why don't i listen to this more often um in a way like this artist seems to be a bit ahead of her time um because in 2011 uh you know right now in 2021 the ideal for the you know a, a, a like a consensus big time indie rock artist is you know, a, a solo performer who still sounds like a band. And EMA was doing this in 2011. But uh, with um, th- with this record, she debuted this album with California, which is still one of the most striking singles of its time. Like the first lyric, like, you know, fuck California, you made me boring. It just draws your attention immediately. There's no drums. It's just for the most part, like guitar feedback and violins and you know, the rest of the record kind of follows suit of being very confrontational, very ugly um, in a way that, of course, everyone compared to PJ Harvey and Courtney Love. I think it, you know, it's it's a it's a reduction. It's a reductionist comparison. But, you know, if that's what gets people to listen, by all means. And um, I'd say she's like ahead of her time because I would be very curious to see how I mean, she's still making music, but like how she would operate as you know, a new artist who would have to kind of have a Twitter brand, because I think one one of the things that, you know, really struck me in your interview with Julian Baker is her talking about having to present herself as this likable person or this all knowing person or someone who's relatable on Twitter, despite how she feels internally. And I think that this record confounds that it's there's there's a lot of more confrontation a lot of like ugliness being revealed, but in like more of a, a frightening way than like a, you know, just look at my misery sort of way. And I think that like going forward with her, she made a lot of records that were, you know, at the time, like criticized for being maybe like a bit too, I don't know, like maybe a bit too insular. Like she made a record um, about like internet surveillance and it reminds me now of like MIA's Maya, which came out in 2010 and that like, yeah, there's like a kind of a lot of like bullshit, but also they were right about most things. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just a situation where I think if they were transposed to the Twitter age, there would be someone who would be like in the news constantly for saying things that, you know, were maybe provocative, but like had an air of truth to them. Um, and I really want to revisit the albums that she made after this, because at the time it was, I would kind of put them aside as because of someone, you know, like what you do sometimes when someone's like not really part of the narrative anymore, it's like, Oh, I'll get to this one. You know, it's not appointment listening, but I think that they are more likely not to hold up. I mean, were you, what what was your take on this record? Yeah. I mean, this wasn't in my top 10, but I I remember liking this record and I, I, I dipped into it when I saw that you wanted to talk about it today. And yeah, it's like a really like like cool record, and it, and and similar to I think Why Oak Civilian, it's one of those albums that like doesn't slot comfortably in any one scene or area. Right. Uh, so if if you're 
if you're younger, or you weren't around or listening to music in 2011 and you want to like hear what the big albums were of this time, this can be an easy album to overlook because it's yeah. not going to be in the syllabus of like a certain scene or no. whatever. But, um, but I think that's one of the strengths of this album is yeah. that it's, it's hard to classify. It's a singer songwriter record, but it's not of the kind that we're used to hearing these days where it, you mentioned like Phoebe Bridgers or Mitski. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's more of like a danger to this yeah. record, uh, and it's 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 more acerbic, and I like that aspect to mm-hmm. it um, because especially now, like like who are like the sort of bad boy or bad girl indie stars? You know, <laughs> we don't have like a lot of that uh, people that are willing, I think, to you know to be a little more subversive or edgy or uh, mm-hmm. or, or even caustic in their music, and I think that's what I really responded to revisiting this record mm. and yeah she's still making records so i'm curious to hear what she does next i think i'm gonna do what you did and and re mm. uh revisit a lot of her albums from the 2010s because it does seem like a pretty interesting catalog yeah uh, to get into um of course we went long this week we're we're going way over here uh should we just do a quick shout out instead of our, our yes. usual recommendation corner yeah uh i just i just want to say uh <laughs> Course and Fable, the new record by Riley Walker, that's out today. Beautiful record, great combination of like uh, Genesis records <laughs> from the '70s and like Chicago post rock. Like yeah. he worked with John McIntyre on this record, who's from Tortoise and the Sea and Cake. Uh, so lots of multi-part songs that have great guitar solos and uh, beautiful interludes in them. Uh, so if that's your thing, definitely check out Course and Fable by Riley Walker. What do you want to shout out? Classic indie rock, classic indie cast choice. For me, um, I would say that there's this album I stumbled upon by this Australian band called Get Well Kid. It came out towards the end of 2020. Uh, and it's 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 like what happened if the if the Appleseed cast became like a chill wave band, I guess. Ooh. Yeah, it's like super low, super raw, lo-fi. The guy's got like 84 followers on Twitter. Find it. It's called Get Well Kid. I believe it's self-titled. Uh, it's almost impossible to find on like YouTube or what have you. But I, I get the sense that if this would be something that like people would really rally around if they just kind of knew about it. Um, also, a band called Twinkle Park. They kind of they were on the Glass Beach remix album. Uh, if you take like the more hyper pop parts of Glass Beach, you have Twinkle Park. So shout out to them. Uh, Kind of hard to find bands, but you know what? Like they're totally worth it, and they take maybe fifteen minutes of your time. <laughs> well, great recommendations and great fun talking about the records of twenty eleven. I guess we'll go back to the present in our next episode. Although who knows? Yeah, I mean, maybe it depends on what's happening <laughs> in indie culture. Hopefully, Little Nas X will put out another video. Um, thank you again for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more reviews, news, and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 